Welcome to the Farm Bits Podcast, a product of Nebraska Extension Digital Agriculture. I'm Jackson Stancil. And I'm Samantha Teton. And we come to you each week to discuss the trends, the realities, and the value of digital agriculture. Through interviews and panels with experts, producers, and innovators from all sectors of digital technology, we hope that you step away from each episode with new practical knowledge of digital agriculture technology. On today's episode, we welcome Tyler Lund, an executive at Veris Technologies. Tyler has a wealth of experience in on-the-go soil sensing and has been involved with Veris Technologies since the company was founded. Tyler's dad, Eric Lund, founded Veris Technologies in 1995 during the onset of precision ag technologies for vehicle positioning and variable rate application. In Tyler's current role, he helps direct their business strategy and identify new opportunities for Veris to help growers optimize their operations. Tyler will discuss the history of Veris and his role in more detail in the episode, but he will also break down on-the-go soil mapping, the differences in types of sensors available on the market for soil mapping, what exactly mapped soil data is useful for, and how users can derive their maximum benefit from the technology. There's a ton of great content in this episode, so we're going to drop you in with Tyler Lund discussing the origins of Veris technologies and where exactly the name Veris comes from. So he launched this company, Veris, which means truth in Latin, uh, like Veritas, uh, Verify, and uh, wanted to be able to help take some of that sensor technology with GPS, with the roughness of of farm equipment, taking lab quality type equipment into the field to be able to go measure where and map where out in the field these soils change so that now we can really make the most of the GPS technology, the variable rate controllers, and put it all together. I love the name and where it came from. Uh, I did my undergrad at Harvard, and our our motto was Veritas, and you know nice. we always saw it as you know verify and truth, and um, yeah, I, I love that. I saw the name and I was like, yeah, there's got to be a story behind that. So it's good to hear. Well, that. we just don't like when people confuse it for virus, and they're like, ah, yeah, yeah, virus. <laughs> you get it, you just can't get rid of it. And, that's right. Uh, hopefully, people don't describe our equipment like that. But. That's a that's a huge PR blow right now, especially. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so how has Veris Technologies changed and adapted since you first got started back in 1995? You know, it's evolved um, just as I think the industry has evolved and and, and wanting to uh, do a better job with managing. I think a lot of it started with fertility. How do we put fertilizer in the right places in a field to you know, see population, corn population, nitrogen management. We were talking about yield, you know, understanding yield. Well, you know, it's usually driven by the soil. And so understand where the soil changes in those relationships. So where Veris has shifted and grown is helping map other properties. So we've developed additional sensors and more advanced applications with kind of some uh, multi-layer uh, management zones to help with that. So we've tried to uh, add sensors and, and, and kind of help farmers more with the actually putting the data to use. That's kind of our evolution over the past 25 years. So so what different sensing technology units does Veris offer right now on the market? Yeah, we, we launched with uh, measuring soil electrical conductivity, which if to the uninitiated can often be confused with the EC or the electrical conductivity that's measured in a laboratory. Uh, this is the what's called bulk apparent electrical conductivity. This is 
really measuring the physical characteristics of the soil, the soil texture, the particle size, whether it's a sandy soil, silty clay, and those variations throughout a farm field. And uh, that's, so that's the physical property we're measuring. We also have a organic matter sensor, which is an optical sensor that measures soil color, soil reflectance, soil pH. And those are the main agronomic uh, productivity type sensors, uh, soil type, so organic matter and soil pH. We've recently come out with a moisture and temperature sensor, and that's more used for uh, equipment control, how we're doing, our, you know, improving our tillage strategy, our planting logistics, uh, so that we're getting that seed off to a good start. We also have uh, compaction sensing on a, on a vertical probe that, that's inserted into the uh, ground. And we, we'd actually also consider our elevation or altitude map when we convert that into slope and curvature to be another sensor because uh, it obviously impacts water movement and a lot of different things in a field so we add that together to say that, you know we're mapping the most physical most important physical biological and chemical properties uh, and with some of those sensors down to a depth of three feet so those are the the, the soil properties we measure um, why did Veris decide to focus on these specific soil properties, the ones that you just mentioned? Um, was there initial focus on measuring the properties that were most agronomically important or that were easily measurable or, you know, what was kind of your thought process behind that? I'd love to say that we went for the, just the most agronomically important <laughs> instead of care for the farmer. I mean, I think some of the sensing technology that we understood at the beginning, the best was easy. And so that was a good place. It, it also happened to be probably the most important contributor to yield in terms of water holding capacity. If, if you drive across a farm field and yields go, you know, in the combine, the yields go up and the yields go down. It's hardly ever due to, I mean, fertility, unless someone's doing a real poor job managing, it's usually due to soil texture. It's due to, uh, you know, the water holding capacity. And if it's not driven completely by water holding capacity, that soil texture is contributing to high yields or pulling it down uh, from a lot of different factors. Compaction changes with soil texture. Uh, think about a planter going across a field. If, if that last tillage pass was done when it was wet and clay, it, you know, you're gonna have big clods and the planter's gonna bounce and you're gonna have poor singulation and space and you're gonna have bad emergence. And so yields can go down in, in those clay parts of the field because of that. We see that a lot with uh, cereals, which don't get as much attention in uh, precision agriculture, but doing variable rate seeding of wheat based on germination, that it's harder to get a good stand in certain soils. So let's jack up the population there. And so, yes, uh, it, we, we went with it because it's a, it's a foundational soil property, uh, but it's also a technology we, we knew about. And so that's, that's why we got started with EC. After that, pH was a soil property that, you know, it, I think a few studies have shown that better management of pH is the most profitable payback in precision agriculture. Because it doesn't matter, you know, a lot of the, the challenge with precision ag is, is it a wet year, dry year, uh, did I choose the right hybrid? How, well, low pH always needs lime and a neutral pH never needs lime year in, year out. It's just a pretty established fact. And so that pH sensor, which we actually worked with a professor from University of uh, Nebraska, <laughs> Slava Adamchuk, yeah. to develop the, the pH sensor that we, we uh, 
license and add on to our sensor. So that was another one just because instant payback for the farmer. And now we're actually probably getting as much attention from that pH sensor being used on the high pH side of things with, like we talked about with iron deficiency chlorosis and adding gypsum to fields and kind of managing some on that side as well. And then organic matter, really uh, that sensor was developed out of a, a desire to understand more about carbon. I think in the early 2000s, there was a, a bigger emphasis then, and it's growing back about how do farmers uh, benefit themselves by storing carbon in the soil and how can they maybe possibly monetize that and help with uh, climate change. And so we developed a, a really advanced, robust Viz NIR you know, with a photospectrometer, uh, many wavelengths of optical sensing to measure carbon for a, you know, a trading program. And uh, we used that technology, simplified it, uh, and, and made an organic matter type sensor, which is probably not used much for carbon uh, management right now, but is a, an important strategy for, for folks who are wanting to do uh, improve nitrogen management. And, and they also use that OM layer for variable rate seeding and, and other inputs. Those are, that's kind of the, the genesis of those different sensors we've had. The, other, the challenge, some of the challenge when I think people are introduced to soil texture, soil EC mapping is I can't change it. So why would I map it? And, you know, it kind of takes a little perspective change that, you no, know, we're not changing the soil, we're changing the way we manage it. We're changing, you know, hopefully the outcome on it. And we're not, you know, we're not going to change that. And we're probably not even ever going to raise up the you know, poor yields to the high yielding areas. We're just trying to reach the potential of each soil. There are three things that you said there I thought were really good. So we can't change the soil, but we can change how we manage it and we can get the maximum productivity out of those regions. Number two, the immediate ROI with the pH. And then finally, getting some added value out of out of data and different cultural practices for farmers. That's something we've been talking about. And we've heard from a couple of our <laughs> farmers that they're really looking into that that carbon sequestration piece. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, whether it's soil health or soil carbon, just understanding the spatial variability. I mean, that's when we sit down to talk to people about soil sensing, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of like a, I don't know, a Tesla pitch. You know, it's not like an, any going and buying any other car. Like you have to sit down and learn about it and, you know, get on board with the cost <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and what all it provides. Uh, but, you know, we need folks to start thinking about soil. And so understanding soil matters that that's, you know, it's at the foundation of everything we grow. But then thinking spatially. I know you had uh, the space plowboy Terry Griffin on a couple <laughs> weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, and just thinking about our farm fields is not just spatially. Of, oh, I've got the West 80 and grandma's, you know, quarter section over here as the, you know, inside that field. And I, farmers do that. They understand the variability, but, but also just thinking about how can I micromanage uh, that variability? And then last is a fusion is we need people to think fusion multi-layers because it's not one property that's that's uh probably should determine our management zones and and you know ferris has the benefit of a, a, a long history in this industry but we often i'd say we get judged by our yearbook photo in that ec is all a lot of people know about us because that's what we had on the market first and for a long time but if we want to get into some of those more you know value add how do we advance you know get involved with uh, some more 
advanced properties uh, or advanced management practices, we need to not just use EC. We need to use EC and topography. And sometimes we need to even throw in organic matter, depending on uh, what we want to manage. And that's one of the unique things we've done lately is what we call application-specific management zones. Because the same zones that are justify where I should put more nitrogen is not necessarily the same set of zones of where I should put more lime. And so having uh, the flexibility and choosing uh, zones based on what we want to manage. That's super interesting. And, and talking about kind of the, the fusion of multiple layers, uh, thinking about this in the context of soil sampling and particularly grid sampling, how exactly does on-the-go soil mapping, like what Veris does, complement what you would get out of a traditional grid sample to kind of create that fusion of layers? Yeah, I think that on-the-go scanning is needs traditional sampling for fertility. I mean, we really need to have a lab help us understand certain certain properties that we're not we're not measuring. So I, I think that there's a good complements there, and, and I think. We just have to understand what each map is used for, whether it's grid sampling or various map, is just use it for its its purpose. Uh, even the soil survey. I mean, it can be kind of a nice reconnaissance tool if you're looking to buy ground or something like that. But if you go on the website to download the Sergo map, it said, there's a warning, do not use this for precision ag, pretty much what it says, not to be used at this scale. And, uh, and <laughs> yeah, we, we tried to, to, to and so I'd say, you know, bad maps have cost farmers more than good maps have benefited them over the years. Because, you know, when we get lost driving, it's it's usually because of a bad map. It's not because, oh, we had the wrong car or put the wrong fuel in the car. Well, that would cause a problem too. But <laughs> so understanding what each map is used for, it can be helpful. I think that grid sampling is especially useful for, uh, as a, a way to identify any, if there's a potential for hot spots with, uh, you know, if there used to be an old hog lot and, you know, phosphorus is uh, through the roof. Uh, and, and so you can look at the results from a grid sampled map and say, all right, I've got some highs and lows and I need to manage that. But what happens when you do get that sample that lands on the hog lot and that hog lot was right here in that zone. And I know we're doing a podcast and this might all be video, but if you think about some of the, the challenges is when you get some of those hot spots, how far are you applying that knowledge from that one sample? Because if you're doing two and a half acre grid sampling, that's you know out to 330 feet based on that one sample. And, and, um, and thinking about what happens in between those samples and, and then interpolating in between. And so, I like the idea of getting a lot of um, lab data from the field, but then just choosing what map to then apply that information from or And then, so some people have adopted the, the kind of a, um, a targeted grid or a shifted grid type type basis, where they use a, a zone map, maybe a varus map or, or yield map and shift where they take their samples so that they're getting representative um, places kind of like a doctor has diagnostic spots. He takes your temperature in certain places and listens to your breathing and, and others, then just randomly do it across your body on a, you know, a pattern that, you know, we go to certain places because we want to get certain information. And I think zone maps can be especially helpful for, for, for stuff like that. And then last, you know, if we're trying to do things like seeding rates, nitrogen management, 
we really have to get the map right in those. Because you think about fertility, if we if we're off a little bit on our P and K, it's probably not going to show up in the first year, right? Second year, third year, it, unless you're right on the cusp. So, <laughs> you know, if, if we're just kind of slinging out enough fertilizer, that's probably okay. There's a, there's a nutrient bank there. With population with seed, if you underpopulate your good soil, it's going to show up in the first year. There's no seed bank, but well, unless someone from left last from last year. <laughs> and then same with the, the low yielding when we are the, the low potential zones, when we're putting high rates there, immediately we're wasting seed. We're causing additional stress on those plants by overpopulating it. And same with nitrogen, you know, especially if you're an advisor, if you get it wrong, it's going to show up that yellow corn's going to stick out like a sore thumb, sore thumb. So having the right spatial map for those inputs is incredibly useful and grid sampling well it's very helpful i think for getting a baseline of p and k when we look at some of those other um, applications it, it might not yield the best results for growers mm-hmm. um, someone mentioned to me once about how much like the moisture really influences the ec maps and so they talked about potentially sampling for moisture to calibrate the sensors are there any other things like that like maybe with ph that you're kind of calibrating these sensors based upon samples? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the, I think, best developments when we came out with the organic matter sensor was we started to uh, encode the data. So, and, and we per, uh, created a process where maps can actually come back to Varus and we can review them for just quality control type measures, but also users started providing us lab samples and we were able to uh, do a, a validation or calibration where, where we would take that EC reading and be able to calibrate it to CEC or cation exchange capacity, take that infrared reading from an optical sensor and shift it or use it, you know, just a regression calibration to organic matter. And same with pH because pH is nice, but most people want to have a buffer pH. And so we would use a lot, you know, some targeted samples, about four samples from a field to do a calibration. And so the additional benefit of just having a lab number and having it validated is now any effective moisture, you know, I mapped this field when it was dry and this field over here when it was wet. And because it's a relative sensor, I can't really compare you know, the unit of measurement with EC as millisiemens per meter. I can't compare those two and I can't create a strategy based on millisiemens per meter on those two fields. But once I get it to CEC, I can say, hey, every area that's 15 to 20 cc, I want to put 100 pounds of nitrogen, whatever that formula or strategy might be, you can start to apply that across your farm, across your trade, across your trade territory. And, and it's also been useful when, uh, as folks are moving towards uh, models, growth models, nitrogen models, uh, having a fixed number. And so uh, moisture can play an impact, does impact the various readings, uh, but it's just a background relative measure, you know, element of it as, as long as it's a consistent moisture across the field there we need to you know, in your area with pivots we need to map the corners separately from the pivot and then use some uh, statistical methods to, to bring those together but um, moisture and trying so that's the direction we would like to go is calibrate it to a known property where there's a lot of research already done with uh advice on OM, CEC, pH, and even sand silk clay, we can calibrate the EC to sand silk clay. We'd rather go that direction than using moisture 
readings to normalize and make a normalized EC map, which does some of the benefit, but I think there's more benefit in calibrating it to a lab lab number. That's interesting. Good yeah. to know. That is good to know. Um, so obviously we, we want to keep talking about exactly what Varus does that makes Varus unique. Um, but would you mind telling us a little bit about what other on-the-go soil sensors are out there on the market and maybe what the pros and cons of these different sensing paradigms are? Uh, for example, like with Varus, um, as far as I understand it, it's, it's an intrusive sensor, so it's actually going to break the soil surface to take some measurements, whereas there are some sensors out there that are basically just, you know, glide over the top, uh, surficial type sensors. So would you mind kind of explaining the difference in those and, and talking about the pros and cons for us? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, there is probably more that have come on the market in the last few years than by the first 15 years of Varus's existence. And so we, we really are actually excited about it because I think, like I mentioned, one of the biggest things we're preaching is soil. And so the more folks who are out there saying that soil matters, we need to map it, we need to manage it, the better. And the thing we have pushed because we're friends with a lot of people in this industry, that a lot of people who are developing these sensors and promoting them is, is, is using them right. Because when our technology is used correctly and when their technology is used correctly, they make good maps. So the other uh, EC sensor is it's also called EM is electromagnetic sensing. And that's a, a way of measuring the same soil property uses the same unit of measurement. They just, instead of, directly injecting electricity into the soil, which is what Varus does. Uh, they use an, a, a magnetic field. And so it's an, a non-intrusive way. And it has that benefit of not breaking the soil surface. Um, the, the, that would be the benefit from it. And like I said, when it's used correctly, it makes a good map. Varus, I think what we like about the fact that we're touching the soil is that when we're touching the soil, there, there, there's no interference. When you're using any type of sensor that's above the ground, anything between this field can, can cause that reading to shift. And so over the day, as moisture or humidity changes, temperature changes, if you go under power lines, there's a change in magnetic field. If you're in a vineyard and there's magnetic or you know, metal objects around, that can cause interference. Good operators know how to manage around that and still make good maps. No, poor operators don't. The other reason that we're okay with touching the soil is it allows us to add additional sensors on that need to engage the soil. Uh, and because those other sensors engage the soil, they're typically have metal in them, which does not allow, or historically hasn't allowed the EM sensor to, to be around that. I think there's some ways now you can have metal around an EM sensor. So uh, that would be uh, uh, the EM technology. It, uh, like I mentioned, it only measures soil texture, just like Varus only so measures soil texture. I think there are companies out there that would like it to measure other things that like compaction. Um, and while soil texture does relate to compaction, it's not a compaction measurement. Uh, the other one that's gaining interest is gamma sensing. Uh, which would be a passive radi you know, measurement of isotopes. And this is, it's kind of a, a it, it sounds Star Trek-y and, and it <laughs> seems new and innovative, but we actually looked at the sensing technology in the 90s and how 
we still have some sitting on the shelf. Uh, it's a similar, what we found is it is a similar reading to EC that what, what's happening is it's measuring decaying uh, isotopes and it go across the field and it measures the quantity counts of, of, of those uh, isotope where you have, what we found is where you have clay, smaller particles, more, more particles, you have higher readings there. And in sandy soils, you have less and you have lower readings there. And so it really just ended up being an expensive EC map. <laughs> and, uh, but we're very excited that there could be potential uh, for it to be more, but really what, what we found in, in a lot of university research, actually uh, Slava Adamchuk, who is at University of Nebraska, is now at McGill University or, uh, College in Canada, did a, a really uh, a comprehensive study with Varus, all of our sensor suite, the EM and gamma, and, and users can, or listeners can, can look up that uh, study, but it really found that our three technologies are measuring soil texture primarily, and there might be some correlation of nutrients that, that, that correlate to the soil texture you know, map, but it's not actually measuring soil soil uh, nutrients in the soil. So those are the, that would be the main technologies on the go that, that we see out there. Um, um, just thinking along the lines of the intrusive versus the ones that are just on the soil surface, does mm -hmm. the increased adoption of no-till and cover crops, does that influence how some of these technologies work as well, or does it not make a big difference? There, there was a study done in Portugal, actually, that, that studied uh, using various direct contact or intrusive versus non-intrusive and that the changes in vegetation uh, on, on, on the field did influence that and, and made it more of a challenge. Yeah. Good to know. Well, I was going to ask, I think you hit on this earlier, but I just want to ask this question because yeah. I really like it. Um, so what has on the go soil mapping like the various units that you've mentioned sensors enabled that was previously unattainable in agriculture? Profitability. I, uh, let's see. <laughs> I think the, the neat things are pretty obscure in different markets. Uh, there's a thing called the root knot nematode in the south that is a big problem in cotton fields. And to manage it, there's a product called Telone. There might be one other. And it's, it is extremely expensive. The application, I think, is upwards of $100 per acre to kill this nematode. Wow. Uh, and I, I think that the real problem is not the cost of the product, but availability. It's a byproduct of carpet manufacturing, something unique like that. And so even just getting your hands on it is challenging. So hmm. what happens though, is that the populations of the root knot nematode are uh, elevated or only present in the sandiest parts of farm fields. So people use the Varus map go out there and find the sandy parts of their field and only apply telone at the fumigant in that area, which saves them lots of money, enables them to grow a crop that otherwise wouldn't be possible uh, because of the damage by the nematode. And they, they're able to conserve the product for only the fields that absolutely need it. And, you know, there, there'd be ideas like that in other, other places. One that's gaining adoption in, Western Europe, and I think is going to come here in the U.S., K-State has actually been researching it, is the use of variable rate 
herbicide based on you know, soil applied herbicides as we're finding that's growing more and more important to move back and um, as our options are limited is that on every almost every label of soil applied herbicide is different rates for different soil types yet we go out and put the same rate <laughs> and uh, either we're not getting efficacy in certain areas or we're over applying in some areas and and you know think about atrazine and what what, you know, what damage can be caused by by over application and and so carryover so using the ph map too uh, you know the properties they they care about on that label is ph organic matter and cec or soil texture and those are the three properties where um you know soil scanning is is capturing yeah i, I really like hearing about the niche uh kind of the niche markets that are potentially coming to the u.s and that a lot of people may not think about out here in in the land of corn and soybeans right now so yeah the herbicides one interest is interesting because everyone wants to skip to the like the site and spray type of thing. But I think what you're talking about is a much more attainable and reasonable step. And yeah, I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, it, it really, you know, getting the problem taken care of before it emerges out, out usually is a better way of doing it. And a lot of that research has already been done by the companies about you know, what rates are, are best in different areas. Another application that I think we would be more profound on a broad scale for agriculture is something we were talking about before we got on is, is how we do our trials. You know, whether it's simple on-farm trials is understanding the underlying soil properties is important because if you put one treatment on good soil and one treatment on poor soil, you're not testing your, you know, your test, you're testing soil. And, uh, and that happens from on-farm trials to, to hybrids to understand, you know, where are we uh, making sure that we either have uniform soil that we're testing on, and that's good for just finding out which hybrid variety is, you know, needs to be promoted. But then after that, as we move to characterizing hybrids, varieties, we see this with, you know, uh, trees in California, uh, vines, uh, grapevines, is that certain varieties like certain soil conditions. You know, they can tolerate low pH. They can tolerate high pH. They like wet feet. They can, you know, this is drought resistant. Well, being able to go now, not avoid variability. And that's some of the testing is avoiding variability. The next more advanced step is exploiting it. Let's go test in some of those areas. Let's get on the side of that hill and put a bunch, you know, put a trial there and just see, see what survives. And uh, that I think could, could really help get some uh, improved and tailored products for certain conditions. And a lot of our breeding is done on ice cream soils, as they call it. And really, you know, with the hopeful adoption of more multi-hybrid, multi-variety planting capabilities, we're not just looking for the, the, the highest performing, you know, hybrid on good soil. We want what's the best, you know, leaf structure on side slopes. What does really good in, um, you know, areas with poor drainage because that's what we have in our farm fields we don't all have those flat <laughs> nice places to, to farm mm -hmm. you hit it on the head yeah. that on farm research is it's just such an important concept i think almost every interview we've had for this podcast so far people have said that that is probably the number one immediate application of precision ag technologies right now mm -hmm. yeah yeah going back to terry griffin he and i served together on the board at uh, the carta the kansas ag uh, research technology association, just a bunch of farmers get together and, and do research and geek out about it, but <laughs> it, it doesn't have to be, you know, 
people who love GIS applications anymore. I mean, just trying different things uh, in whole you know, field strips instead of small treatments is going to probably benefit farmer more than you know, reading, I don't know, uh, some, some farm magazine at times. Absolutely. Okay. So what are some considerations for a potential customer of yours uh, to make when trying to decide what the right type of sensor is for their operation? Yeah, it really depends on what the grower or the agronomist uh, or researcher wants to accomplish. But, uh, you know, the, we've really tried to, we're a precision egg only company. We're not adapting or uh geological or environmental tools and just hoping it fits the ag market. We're really trying to understand that uh, farmers are going to use this, agronomists are going to use this. So we've created models that hopefully fit their operation. So a typical maybe agronomist or consultant model would be our, our utility vehicle model, the U3. It can be pulled by a John Deere Gator, a Kawasaki Mule, can be transported easily. You know, that's measuring all of those soil properties, EC, OM, pH, topography, can be used for a lot of different applications. A grower, on the other hand, might be interested in our, our iScan model, which is able to be mounted to a tillage tool, a planter, uh, cidrus bar, a lot of different applications or ways you can uh, mount that. And you can passively be collecting that data while you're doing another field operation. And uh, and that's that's probably one of the more exciting avenues where, where Veris is, is going is a lot of our focus has been on inputs. How do we better manage inputs? When we start putting sensors on tillage tools and on planters, it's, we're, yeah, we're getting that data. We'll be able to use that in management zones, but man, a lot of these tools now have on-the-go adjustments. Uh, vertical tillage, especially. We've got gang angle, which is, you know, throwing more or less dirt, uh, more, you know, more or less aggressive. We can go deeper, you know, same with cultivator even now. We can, we can change depth on the go without you know, tipping the machine back and forth. All that happens, you know, we have those adjustments because we have, want to accomplish different things on our fields at different times of the year, but also in different parts of the field. I'm thinking about the areas that, you know, when we talked about earlier, when you get into that heavy clay, if you have the same tillage setting that you did on that nice loam soil, you might be going too deep and you're going to be bringing up clods you're going to be making a washboard and so when that planter comes back it's going to have a challenging time getting a good seedbed or you know, seed planted right and so getting sensors onto those tools is going to allow us to enable the farmer to do a better job managing each part of those fields and and even you know if we put on our you know, looking into the future glasses and, and trying to to see what, what's going to come. That is what I'd say is the first step towards automation. Autonomous farming is, you know, we can have an autonomous tractor pretty easily. We already have it, but we need autonomous implements too. Cause right now it's a, you know, someone in the cab deciding what's, what, what changes need to be made back there. And our tillage and planting sensors can really help provide the information about the ground conditions and what's happening to really optimize that, the, those, those settings and, and, and feed it into a system to allow automation. But I was, I've been doing so we're no-till farmers, but we recently had a lot of floods and we had to do some vertical tillage on, on some fields. And um, 
going across the, the landscape, man, I just really, it, it was just hard to imagine wanting to do the same thing on each, you know, on the side slope, on the depressions, going through these different contrasting environments. I, I, the, I got introduced to, to soil variability by my grandpa when he was teaching me how to plow and disc a field. And there's a far part of the field. He said, oh, that's, an, that's an alkali spot. And when you get there, you're going to have to downshift because it's real hard on, on you know. And, uh, you know, I was a rebellious <laughs> kid. So instead of downshifting, I just lifted the machine out of the ground, the, plow, the disc out of the ground so I could keep going fast to get down the field in that area. But that was, you know, that was the realization that there's differences in these fields and we need to manage it. And so uh, Varus can help put gypsum in that alkali area and help flocculate the clay and improve the soil. But also we can help with the making sure that all the implements that go across it are smart too. And not a teenage field operator. (laughs) (laughs) That'll help out a little bit. (laughs) Which uh, actually I was going to ask you this. Are you guys thinking about making a, or maybe you already have a software that will do management zone generation? Yeah. Again, I think we've, uh, we, people know various for EC, uh, the users of our more advanced platforms and more recently be more familiar with some of the, the tools we have. We have a cloud-based platform called Field Fusion, and that's where the upload of our maps and where we do our feedback and quality control happens. But beyond that, that's where we, uh, the namesake Field Fusion is we're fusing together those different layers into management zones. And so we do have uh, a cloud-based software platform, and that really came out of this, you know, user experience of, I've got all these maps, what do I do with them? And really stepping in and helping people make those, like I mentioned, application-specific management zones. So on that service, we've got a seeding prescription map. We don't tell you what population. We don't know from Salina, Kansas, what what farmer in Ohio should. And, <laughs> but we do know that these are different soils. They've got different water holding capacity. They like a different yield potential. And this is where we would say, and we can change rates. Here's a map of, uh, we go back to iron deficiency chlorosis. This is where we see a high risk. It's got high pH. It's a heavy soil. It's the depressional. This is where if you're going to, you know, one of the ways you combat it is changing, uh, increasing soybean population because they're at risk for IDC. This is where you should jack the rates the highest. Here's the next medium zone. And this is, you know, pH is in the sixes. That type of tool we make the management zones. We give you the tools to put in prescriptions and download it, send it to some of the major platforms uh, or download it, put it in your own GIS software. But yeah, a lot of those tools from mapping to prescription, Veris now offers. Is that kind of the uh, what's on the horizon and kind of the direction that the company is, is moving now? Or are there also some exciting developments in terms of sensing technologies that may be on the horizon? And you can tell us about a little bit more. Well, the the, bat, the whiteboard behind me may be blank, but we do have some <laughs> ideas uh, in the hopper. No, I think, you know, we, we really are, uh, it's fun because we're a 25-year-old startup company. We've got electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, farm kids. I mean, we, this is, we just love this stuff. And we're, we're I think we're, we're developing on multiple fronts. Sensor development, for sure. Um, a lot with them, implement control. Um, and then the other side would be on the agronomy and how do we use this data more intelligently? 
one of the things that, that we uh, would love to see more people make use of, you're talking about yield analysis is how, how do we look at the soil and the yield together? And one of the more advanced ways we see it is that the soil, uh, you know, if some people say, well, my, my yield map doesn't look like my Varus map. So the Varus map, what value is it providing me? Well, that's probably a good thing if you, you know, to some degree, because if they look the same, then actually, well, that would be the best thing because it means your limiting factor is your soil. If your poor soil yielded poorly and your good soil yielded great, well, you didn't make any mistakes, I guess you could say. I mean, maybe you could have brought everything up. But what we like to analyze is to look at, okay, here's my poor soil. And here's some area that's part of that that's yielding even lower. And here's my good soil. And I've got some that's, you know, high yielding and some that's yielding uh, a medium level. Well, how do I go in there? Do I have got drainage problem, uh, fertility problem? Did my neighbor drift onto my field? But, but I've got, this is my good yielding soil. Let me look at my yield data and see where I have divergent yields and I can fix some of those problems, especially the missing middle. I mean, we like pat ourselves on the back for our high yielding areas and, you know, kick ourselves for the low yield, but that middle area, how much of that middle area is good soil and could be raised up by, by some sort of management change. And so using those advanced analytics where we look at similar soils, but divergent yields, I think can really help, especially crop consultants, scouts, to understand what's going on, go there and figure it out because I mean, we've seen you know, same soil, but 20% yield difference. That That's a big dollars that you can fix that you don't have to fix the soil. You have to fix some outside problem that's probably manageable. Is there any other questions? Are you ready for the last so. one? I don't think so. I want to get his advice because I think uh, yes. he's got something good coming for us. <laughs> okay. So what is one piece of advice that you'd offer to our listeners out there, um, whether those be crop consultants, researchers, or farmers, what would you like to tell them? Ooh, of all the questions, I probably should have thought through that one ahead of time. I mean, we talked about on-farm trials. I think a lot of this comes down to validating it yourself. There, just uh, here's a farm magazine right here. You can read a lot of new things are coming out, and maybe it's slowed down a little bit. Maybe the Silicon Valley, you know, angel capital and you know, is, is coming down, uh, or venture capital. So we're getting a little less vaporware out there and vapor products, but just trying it, trying it and validating it. And I think one of the things that we've benefited from is a lot of scientific review. I mean, we're talking, you guys are grad students, you've used our equipment. A lot of the, the students have come through, you and I have. Um, and, and while it's been a challenge to have a rigorous scientific review of our products, once they've been validated, now the pivot is less from do these sensors work to how do we get these sensors to work? And so I would encourage growers, consultants to apply their own rigorous review of products that come out, um, demand that of their extension agents, their 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 universities to, to try things and help understand it. And uh, not to be skeptical or, or reject it all because there's a lot of new things that are coming out that probably have value. But, um, not not uh not jumping in without doing some research ahead of time. We'd like to offer a big thank you to Tyler Lund for joining us on the Farm Bits podcast. 
It was great to have someone who has been so involved with the on-the-go soil mapping since its inception provide some detailed information about the ins and outs of the technology. There was so much content in that episode, so as happens really too often, I had two (laughs) favorite parts of this episode. One was when Tyler said that we can't change the soil, but we can change how we manage it to get the maximum potential and profit out of different areas of the field. It was such a clear description of what we were trying to do with site-specific crop management in digital ag. My second favorite part of the episode was Tyler talking about some of the important factors to consider with intrusive soil mapping implements and non-intrusive soil mapping implements. There's a lot more nuance there than you might think to the pros and cons of each different soil mapping paradigm or, or way of going about doing things, including tillage practices and rotational practices. I thought that was great as well. Um, I love the discussion on how sensors and management zones are not the same for all different applications. The management zones and how we react to soil variability is different for whether we're doing a seeding prescription or a fertility recommendation or even site-specific pesticide applications. For some of these things, we need to be a lot more precise and utilize different layers such as topography and organic matter. Again, that's a piece of nuance that a lot of people don't think about. Some people think a zone is a zone, but that's not always true. Mm -hmm. So that's a wrap for this episode. Um, We look forward to you joining us next week as we hear a discussion with Dr. Trenton Franz about how exactly measurements from these soil sensors and from soil sampling are converted into maps to use for decision making. Looking forward to it. Thank you for taking the time to join us today on the Farm Bits podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts to be informed about the latest content each week. We welcome your feedback. So if you have comments or questions for us, please reach out to us over email, on Twitter, or in the review section of your favorite podcast platform. Our contact information can also be found in the show notes. We would like to thank Nebraska Extension for their support of this podcast and their commitment to providing high quality informational material to members of the agricultural community in Nebraska and beyond. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on this podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the views of Nebraska Extension or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We look forward to you joining us next week for another episode of Farm Bits. Farm Bits.